we are always trying to do more with less, simplify and streamlining things. As we grow and we learn, we will adapt and then we will create services for the companies to become circular. From NYC by Design, this is The Mic, a podcast that offers an inside look into New York City's most creative minds. I'm your host, Debbie Millman. From projects to products, inspirations, and more, join us each episode as I talk to members of New York City's design community about what makes design so outstanding. This season, we're exploring the theme of our future city. We're talking about how New York is being revitalized, reinvented, and rediscovered through design. As one of the most recognizable fashion capitals of the world, New York City is known for flourishing culture, style, and innovation. With its growing community of local designers and manufacturers, it's no surprise that fashion is at the heart of the city's cultural identity. For city dwellers and creatives alike, wearable design is a means of self-expression. The clothing we wear tells a story about who we are, what we believe, and how we want to be perceived. On this month's episode of The Mic, we are joined by Ouija Theodore, creative director and founder of menswear brand and boutique, The Brooklyn Circus, and Carmen Gamma, director of circular design at Eileen Fisher. We're going to explore fashion's role in urban life and discuss how manufacturing practices, sustainable material sourcing, cross-disciplinary collaborations, creative processes, and storytelling all play a role in the world of fashion design. Thank you both for being here. First, I'm excited to introduce Ouija Theodore, creative director and founder of the Brooklyn Circus, a menswear brand that finds inspiration in the pages of history books and aims to change the way Americans dress. Ouija is a cultural connector and lead curator who has cultivated a unique style and has garnered recognition not only from the fashion pundits of New York, but also from streetwise fans as far as Europe, South Africa, Japan, Korea, and the UK. Before Brooklyn Circus, Ouija attended the State University at Stony Brook with a degree in history and later went on to study advertising design at the Fashion Institute of Technology. As one of the most influential retail concepts in the U.S., Ouija travels extensively, sharing the Brooklyn Circus perspective as well as a 100-year plan of style and character. Ouija, it is an honor to be talking to you. Thank you so much for joining today. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Well said, Red, <laughs> and everything. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, it is just an honor. I am a huge fan. I, I don't want to be fangirling, but I just can't help it. But in any case, <laughs> I'm going to try and calm myself down. <laughs> I'd like to start by talking about the Brooklyn Circus and how it grew to be where it is today. Can you give us a bit of background about your inspiration behind the brand, how it came to be, a bit of your origin story? I am originally from Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and I came to the U.S. at the age of eight, left for about a year, came back to uh, the U.S. at the age of 10. 
We spent about a year in Haiti, returned back to Haiti and came back to the U.S. And for me, the Brooklyn Circus is rooted in that journey, the journey of being an immigrant, the journey of being Haitian, the journey of being a black man in America, the journey of being American. Because the challenge for me over the years and what I had to accept was the fact that I was equally both. I spent most of my life here in America. I've traveled, yes, extensively throughout the world and, of course, spent many of years and days and hours in Haiti. But I realized that I was as American as I was Haitian. And there were people in America that are living that duality. And the Brooklyn Circus was just came from that. The Brooklyn Circus was born from this need to express this duality that I was and that I am. And, and I knew there were people out there that were feeling the same way and were of that root. You can be who you are and be both or three or four, whatever those things are, those layers that make you who you are, you can actually be that at the circus. And then, of course, in Brooklyn, and it became the Brooklyn Circus. My wife and her family are all Haitian. No. Uh, my wife is Haitian-American, but her parents are from Haiti. Oh, And wow. we uh, spend a lot of time Thinking about Haiti, talking about Haiti, nice. uh, her dad goes back and forth and is trying to help Haiti rebuild after the earthquake. Is your family all okay? Yeah, everyone's okay. Everyone's okay physically. And of course, spiritually, we're all still healing from the political unrest, the earthquake, yes. the image, the marketing, and so on and so forth. And that, for me, was important. And again, being a Black man in America, we're healing from all of these things as well, that we're dealing with all of these things. Again, I saw the Haitian struggle, for me, was very parallel to the African-American struggle. And landing in America, when I'm walking on the streets, I am African-American. And so just, again, bringing all of that and, and seeing a beauty in that, not that we're glorifying struggle and we're not glorifying those things, but there was a beauty in that and understood what my story was. And so, yes, the family is okay. I came back from Haiti about a month ago. I'm there as often as possible, and we are continuing to build and continuing to move forward and thrive. Talk about the name Brooklyn Circus. Where did that come from? Originally, the store was going to be called Bergen and Nevins because it was a destination shop. It was at the corner of Bergen and Nevins. And I was like, oh, I can run with that. And I think the trademark was available. <laughs> but in a conversation with some friends, the Brooklyn Circus is going to be a collection for the season. I, I shared the idea with them. They were like, oh, what's the name of the store? I was like, Bergen and Nevins. They were like, nah, we like the Brooklyn Circus. And the reason why the collection, there was a collection that I was building to launch the store, the collection was going to be called the Brooklyn Circus because I felt that Brooklyn was a circus. And Brooklyn always felt like that place in a place where everyone was welcome, whether you were Polish, Russian, Haitian, Jamaican, whatever it is that you were, your story found its place in Brooklyn. And I looked at the trademark, decided that it made more sense to call this store the Brooklyn Circus versus this collection. If it was just one collection, the essence of what I really wanted to say would have been lost in just like one collection and that was it. The, the hesitation was in thinking that if we called it the Brooklyn Circus or if I called it something Brooklyn, it would alienate others and other boroughs and other states and cities. But it was quite the opposite. It just brought what we stood for really kind of stood before the name Brooklyn. But yeah, yeah, yeah. so Brooklyn, yeah. So I was born Brooklyn in Brooklyn, Circus. so I have particular so pride know, for, so for right, 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 right. 
It's so interesting, though, about the name Bergens and Nevins. That's how Dwayne Reed got its name. The original Dwayne Reed was on the corner of Dwayne and Reed. And the story. And that's exactly it. Yeah. So you do know that. It is. It's exactly that. It was at the corner. And there is a Dwayne Reed at the corner of Dwayne and Reed in the city. Yeah. And that's exactly why. Yeah. So that's great that you know this, John. It's awesome. <laughs> You're doing your research. Oh, but that's well, thank it. you. Thank you. So that's the reason why I thought about Bergen and Nevins. But yeah, but we went with the Brooklyn Circus and we were, were happy and satisfied that we went with the Brooklyn Circus. Do you think that there's a different aesthetic in Brooklyn or around Brooklyn? How, how has Brooklyn and its culture influenced, if it has, the designs in your label? For me, Brooklyn, again, growing up in Brooklyn in the 90s and the 2000s and the 90s, really around polo culture and around... Brooklyn was always, for me, where I grew up at, was dressing was always aspirational. It was always putting and buying things that you didn't necessarily have access to that wasn't designed for you. But I went deeper than that because my mom, as amazing as she was, and my grandmother, they were all very aspirational. But there's a point where you have to say, okay, how much of this could I actually become? You know, if you were wearing ski jackets, like, you should explore skiing. If you're wearing a snowboarding jacket, you should explore snowboarding, like really become what you, you're dressing to aspire to be versus spending an entire lifetime dressing like you've arrived and you never arrive. And so... <laughs> and I love so, the way you put that. Yeah, yeah. So it was, for me, it was really about the brand being one, aspirational, and two, inspirational, inspiring people to aspire to be. So it's so it really became a thing of, hey, whatever it is that we aspire to be, we actually ultimately became so style, character, 100-year plan, evolution of urban, being better men, being better dressed American men, we actually became that. So it wasn't us playing dress up because in the nineties, we sort of played dress up at 16 and 17. We wore sweaters around our necks. Like we were, you know, walking out of country clubs and never made it to a country club. <laughs> you know, We wore ski jackets and never went skiing. I became a snowboarder because it was, for me, it was like, okay, you've worn enough of these ski jackets. Like let's figure out how to get on the slopes and know what the technicality and the zippers and the buttons and whatever it is that were involved in the jackets were built for and put them to use. And so that's what it was really about being aspirational, but also inspirational because you ultimately made it to where you wanted to go. The Brooklyn Circus Boutique has been described as more of an experience than just a store. And the interior has been described as an eclectic combination of a 1930s haberdashery with a hip hop flair. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about how you approach the design of the space and how you want people to feel when they're in the space. The space itself is a constant evolution of what I love, what I've seen and who I've become and who and what the brand has become. So that description was probably five or six or 10 years ago. Who we are now is a little bit different. And I say different in the sense of where it's we are always trying to do more with less, simplify and, and, and streamlining things. So we were quite layered in the past, but I would say now we are saying the same thing, but we're a lot simpler. We're always thinking about the future as much as we think of the past. Early on, we thought about the past a lot and figured figured out how to pull inspiration from the past. But with being in business for 16 years uh, tomorrow, 
February eleventh. Yes, thank you, thank Happy you, thank you. February eleventh of two thousand and six. We now have a reference. We have archive that we can look back into and say, "Hey, how do we do that better? How do we simplify that?" And how do we push things into the future, but still hold on to the history? So the stores are always, and the store itself, the Brooklyn store is always an evolution of where, we, where we're headed. And so the experience for us is always about, again, inspiration and aspiration. You mentioned your 100-year plan. I also referenced that in my introduction. I read that the Brooklyn Circus is centered around a goal that you call the 100-year plan of style and character. Can you tell us a bit more about the plan and, and what it means, what your ultimate goals are? I read a book, and I say read, it's a coffee table book by Merrill Manning about the African-American struggle. It was 100 years of African-American struggle consolidated into this coffee book. It was a big, It was a big turning point for me to really understand that, yes, we were referencing men of jazz, men of poetry, the civil rights movement, and, then, and realized that in the struggle, there was also this beautiful thing that was happening. People realized that their image and who they ultimately wanted the world to see them as was being questioned or was uh, available for them to change. And so that book helped me, again, understand that 400 years of African-American struggle, whether it be us out of slavery, us as a people becoming, you know, who we are today, I realized that it would take us at minimum 100 more years. How can I create this 100-year coffee table book of the Brooklyn Circus experience? Not just struggle, but the beauty of growing a business, the beauty of carving our space in global fashion, carving our space as a brand in, in American fashion. But it was just so much more than just fashion. It was style. It was characters, who we ultimately would become as a people, what our place would be in the industry and what industry we'd create from that. And so the 100-year plan was for sure about looking forward and looking at who and where we would be 100 years from now. Any predictions? Any oh, hopes? Man. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess to think that we, you know, I mean, I think about the things that we've done through the brand and with the brand. I don't think I could have. Yeah, it's, I just couldn't really just envision what 16 years later would look like, what I would look like, gray beard and traveling on behalf of the brand and doing podcasts. Again, I'd love for it to be a school of thought. I'd love for it to be an actual museum, galleries and an institution where kids and people can walk into this place or these places to, to not only be educated, but to also be entertained and to be challenged. So for sure, I want to see the Brooklyn Circus as an institution, an institution that's as important as the Brooklyn Museum or the MoMA or the Met or the Brooklyn Public Library, because I think that our perspective should be archived and our perspective should be uh, available to, for people to study, not because Ouija touched it, but because the people after Ouija actually took it to the next level. So it's not just about me as a creative director or founder. It's about who we inspired, who we ultimately sparked. Like Tupac said, you know, I might not be the greatest rapper, but I hope to inspire the next great rapper. So it's the same thing with the work that I do. Ouija Theodore, thank you so much for joining me here today on the mic. And please stick around. I'd love to have you rejoin us after I talk with Carmen. Next, I am happy to introduce Carmen Gama, a New York-based designer born and raised in Mexico. 
Carmen attended Parsons, the New School for Design, and graduated as a finalist for the Designer of the Year Award, Class of 2015. Upon graduation, Gamma's Sustainable Urban Outerwear thesis earned her the inaugural Eileen Fisher by CFDA Social Innovator Fellowship. During her fellowship, Gamma worked collaboratively to design a scalable and profitable remanufacturing system for the damaged Renew Eileen Fisher garments, which concluded with a remade in the USA capsule collection that debuted in July 2016. Gamma is currently the director of circular design at Eileen Fisher Renew, where she's constantly finding ways to extend the life cycle for used and damaged garments. Carmen, welcome to the mic. Oh, thank you so much, Debbie. I'm really excited to be here and chatting with you. So my first question is this. I would love to know more about how you discovered your passion for design. I think it goes back to when I was a little girl, like everybody. I grew up in a very artistic household. My dad was a shoe designer. He owned a factory from Leon, Mexico, where it's the it's a big in shoe uh, the shoe industry and leather. So I grew up in that environment. My mom taught me at a very young age how to draft patterns, modify designs, and how to be very resourceful with the things that I already have with me. Redesigning clothes that she owned, I will draft my patterns from scratch, literally measuring your hip, your everything, in newspapers, right? Because she wanted us to be conscious about waste from a financial point of view, but also from the environment. So... My parents always, especially my mom, she encouraged me. I wanted to paint. She took me to painting classes. I wanted to do clothing. She really just pushed me. And I didn't know about the issues this industry brought to our planet and the people. But when I was a girl, I thought that I wanted to be the best fashion designer in the world. You know, like work for Dior. That was my dream. John Galliano, actually, he inspired me a lot from his collections for Dior a long time ago. So, you know, that was the goal, what I wanted to be. But everything changed very quickly when I came to United States after I graduated from high school. I came to New York. That's where I started. Where did your interest in the issue of sustainability in the fashion industry, where did that come from? How did that intersect sustainability and fashion for you? You know, part of it was internal because I grew up that way, but it never really clicked for me. It clicked when, and I'm like summarizing my years. I've been in New York for the past 16 years. I didn't start it right away at school. I came here as an au pair because I wanted to come here and take some classes in fashion. I was only going to be here for one year, but then 16 years later, I'm still here. (laughs) And my mom is like, please come back. Famous last words, Carmen. Famous last words. (laughs) Famous last words. My mom lately is like, when are you going to come back? And I'm like, "Um, not really. I go back to Mexico very often because my whole family is there. But anyway, so long story short, when I started at Parsons, I was really lucky to be able to study there. I was surrounded by a lot of teachers that opened my eyes, issues that the industry was bringing to us. And waste was the one that it really stood up for me a lot. And I'm a person who likes to be surrounded by people who challenge you. They will challenge me every design. Why are you doing this theme? Why are you choosing these fabrics? Why are you doing this inspiration? So that was the education that I had there. And 
when I found out about the amount of waste that we produce, because we produce over 100 billion garments a year globally, which is a lot. Just Eileen Fisher, or is that all fashion brands together? Globally, all fashion brands, we produce around 100 billion garments per year. And around 95 of those will end up in a landfill, which is so sad. Yes. How does that happen? I was astounded as I was doing my preparation for today's show about the amount of waste. Can you give our listeners some sort of overview of how this waste happens and and why it keeps happening year after year, despite the efforts by people like you? I mean, there's different reasons why there's waste. Brands, clothing brands, one of them, tend to, you know, their forecast is like they just produce a lot for one collection, not knowing 100% if it's going to sell. So a lot of these garments that we produce don't even make it to the stores, don't even make it to our customers. So a lot of these brands, they rather just downcycle them, throw them into the trash because they don't want them to get into the resale market. So that's one of the reasons. Another reason is that trends. For me, trends, it's a big waste producer. We are living in a world right now where every two weeks we are seeing new clothing, right? New trends. Every season, which seasons are getting shorter and shorter, you know, you're not wearing the, the pants of the season. You're not wearing the fabrics of the season. So people are disposing a lot of garments e- uh, faster. Also, that's on the company side and also on the consumer side. But on the customer side, we're used to by now buying really cheap garments. And actually, I'm going to say cheap with quotation marks because these garments that you buy, a t-shirt for $5 or a dress for $10, these are not true cost. They're actually very expensive garments, and people do not realize that. They're costing us a lot of money on health, right, environmental impact. These are indirect costs that we are not actually seeing it. We're used to buying really cheap garments that have, like, very low quality. So what? You wear it one, two times. On average, people wear it, I think, several times a garment before they get rid of it. And then they just dispose it, and then you buy another one. So... It's like this false idea of cheap garments and then the lack of good quality garments that we have right now in circulation. One of many. Yeah, yeah. No, it's astounding and astonishing to learn about this now. I'm going to approach how I do or don't continue to build my wardrobe forever more. Can you walk us through the process for Eileen Fisher's Renew? How does a garment go through a life cycle from its initial design to the reuse phase? How do you make that decision? Talk us, talk to us, if you can, about that journey. Yeah, of course. So Eileen Fisher, it's a sustainable women's clothing brand. She has made you know a commitment to design right clothing that have at least as big environmental impact positive environmental impact as we can. We're doing a lot of organic fabrics. We are tracing our supply chain. We're making that there's safety and chemistry that we use, but it doesn't stop there. So what about everything that we produce? That's what she was thinking, right? Like I'm doing everything on the supply chain, but I'm putting a lot of garments out there. So she started a take back program in 2009. 
And since then, we collected over 1.6 million garments, and probably it's more by now. And we only collect Eileen Fisher garments. So how it starts? Any customer that has an Eileen Fisher garment in their closet can return it to any of our Eileen Fisher stores or send it directly to our warehouses. We have two, one in um, Seattle, Washington, and the other one in Irvington, New York. So we sort these garments, we clean them, and the ones that are in good condition, we sell them back. And the ones that are damaged, we have different solutions. And that's the world that I am in. I am more dealing on what to do with the damaged inventory. And we do repair, we do remanufacturing, meaning we deconstruct the garments and we, we design them again, but at scale manner. Like this is not like one of kind. And then we do fiber to fiber recycling. And we also do felting materials where we have a huge felting machine in Westchester. And then we deconstruct the garments and create beautiful textiles to make home goods accessories and for architectural space. Does the Renew program and the learnings that you're getting from these new design processes impact any way that you're designing new Eileen Fisher garments? Yes, I love that question because that's, yes, we do have a lot of information in our hands when we go through these garments and we talk to the mainline designers. And I just recently actually got promoted to director of circular design, where my role now is to really start looking from the first life all the way to the end life. Because the more you design for your first life garments in consideration for the second, third or fourth life, the better it is for you to be able to capture those materials and put them back into the system. So yes, for example, we have received a lot of pants that we, it's the same style and we see them that there's like a construction issue. People are returning these pants and we see the same damage. We bring it back to our supply chain. Or sometimes we say, hey, listen, we have no solution for these materials. <laughs> Maybe we start considering we want to actually produce them. It's not as easy as I'm saying it. You change a whole material in a collection. It's huge effort, but we're getting there. But it's almost like getting ethnographic market research when you get these products back and see the wear and tear literally and figuratively. Yeah. Are you, are you now designing these products, the newer products with the extended lifestyle in mind? So knowing that this could eventually turn into that, for example? Yes and no. Yes, the nature and the beauty of Eileen Fisher is she's been doing this for 30 years and a lot of her style have, haven't changed. She has a very simple and high quality materials. So if you want to say she's been designing for circularity since day one, right? Because a, a sweater, you know, for example, here is just beautiful cashmere. It's, it doesn't have any seams. It just gives me a lot of good product to work for after. So we are already doing that by nature, but for sure we're looking at like the small amount of uh, polyester that we have in the line. What can we do with it? The What can we do with our elastane that we're choosing to have in our fabrics because we cannot recycle them? Yes, we're taking that into consideration. One of the things that I've noticed about the Eileen Fisher brand and Eileen Fisher design in general is how there's very little what seems to be planned or forced obsolescence, which in a lot of fashion brands and perpetuated in a lot of fashion magazines. I'd love to know if that's always been something intentional in the brand or if that's just evolved over time. It seems like Eileen Fisher never goes out of style. The, the clothes that you might have bought 20 years ago, if you take good care of them, you could still wear today. 
Yeah. And honestly, if you come to our warehouse, we have a vintage section. These are garments that are over 30 years old and they're still in perfect condition and they're so in brand. Like it doesn't look dated. I wear a lot of vintage Eileen Fisher garments and they look like current designs. So I think the whole philosophy of her starting a line is because she wanted an easy way to dress without thinking so much about it, like a simple dressing system. So she's created like this system of like key pieces that you can just easily, effortlessly just wear them without thinking too much about it. And I feel like that simplicity is what's like allowing her to have her aesthetic survive for so many years. And then we have so many customers that return so many garments to us because they have like years worth of Eileen Fisher in their closets. What would a more circular economy look like for the fashion industry? Do you see that as a possible feasible future? Yes, for sure. I That's how I envision it. And that's why I'm so passionate and so committed to these. But it does require a lot of collaboration within our industry and other industries. And also we require a lot of support from the government with new legislations. What I'm seeing more right now, we are going currently through a huge systemic change in the industry. A lot has happened. Our customers are demanding change right? They want to support like good initiatives for the environment, for the people. So what's happening right now, it's we're going through like a resale boom. A lot of companies are starting to be like, uh, they want to be part of the resale market. If a lot of like younger generations are like selling their clothing, they're like, hey, I want to actually capture that customer. And I want to capture that value of that garment and make, get that garment back to me. So that's happening right now. But at the same time, we're seeing that a lot of these garments cannot be resold, right? So there's like a need for all of this, what I'm calling the post-consumer supply chain. We need a post-consumer supply chain infrastructure that deals with all of these garments that customers are returning, either reselling, repairing, you name it, or recycling. There's a lot of key players that they're trying to address these issues. But as we grow and we learn we will adapt to those needs and then we will create those services for the companies to become circular. Because circularity right now, it's extremely complicated. It's like a huge complex system trying to achieve it. But if there's no companies that support it, companies are not going to do this on their own. Eileen Fisher is very unique by doing this on her own. We're doing this on our own. But you require a lot of infrastructure, you need a lot of resources, and you need a lot of expertise to make this happen internally. But not everybody has that. So that's why I'm like rooting for a post-consumer supply chain that will address this so more companies can become circular. Carmen, what you're doing is extraordinary, and I hope that everybody listening today can understand that there really is a different way to market and manufacture fashion and doing it in the way that you are doing it at Eileen Fisher could really do an awful lot to protect the planet. Thank you so much for sharing these remarkable efforts that you're making. Thank you so much, Damien. I'd like to ask Ouija Theodore to rejoin us so we can all talk together. Welcome back, Ouija. Yes, 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 I'm back. (laughs) Carmen, with your focus on circular practices, 
And Ouija, your work in creating timeless pieces that stand the test of time, 100 years, hopefully, I'd love to hear your perspectives on the importance of creating garments that last. Ouija, I'd love to know your sensibility about how we can create fashion that lasts longer. Uh, I think Carmen touched on that and beautifully said, Carmen, I'm absolutely inspired by what Eileen Fisher has been doing and the work that you're doing. And she also touched on the idea that the consumers, again, getting the support of government and legislation and making sure that, because it's not a cheap when you think about buying back product, because we also do the same thing. We buy back product, but we're not as sophisticated as what, you know, Eileen Fisher is doing because of, again, resources and it's hard to intake the stuff. It's hard to repair and build, but we're always excited to see the product come back home, as we say, and then doing what's necessary to put it back in the universe and creating a circular concept. And again, from the design perspective, to think in that way, to think that this product will come back home someday, five or 10 years from now. And when it does, what does it ultimately look like? But the consumers are dictating that we want to live in a better world. We want to be more responsible. We want to work and do business with companies that are more responsible and more conscious. Because again, a billion or how many billion dollars worth or billion units of garment or being put in the universe. So we are very conscious of that as well. And I think that we as a brand, as the Brooklyn Circus, we'd love to be better at that. So any opportunity to collaborate with people like Carmen or uh, others that are thinking and that live and breathe in that way, because we were raised to think about trends, to think about the next thing. And that's what the 100 year plan was about as well, because we lived in this hip hop, American pop culture of what's next, who's the next hot celebrity, what's the next hot topic, what's the next hot show that you're watching versus thinking about like, how do I go back and reflect on the things that we grew up on or the things that are more permanent? I actually have a suggestion for your book. Oh, wow. Let's hear it. For your 100-year book, like you just have to be circular where everything that you produce come back to you and then you just make new beautiful products from it. And that's actually that can be achieved in less than 100 years. But yeah, the challenge that we've had, Carmen, has been to find people that can actually deconstruct the garment and make new garment out of it finding designers that think in that way. Yeah, I'd love, love, love to stay connected with you and, and tap into the network of people that think in that way, to think if we can't repair this garment, how do we now take it apart and really create something new out of it? And, and it's been a challenge, but we're up for the challenge because we know that's what's necessary. And also that's what adds that texture to the brand and to who we are as people and as business owners. It's more exciting to me to see something old become new again than to see this whole new garment. You know, I, I have a degree in history. I enjoy things as they get older and better. Fashion is one of the few industries that really are forcing obsolescence on consumers, that and technology. You know, technology, we always have the better iPhone coming, the better device, the better iPad, et cetera, et cetera. With fashion being so season-based, it forces the people that love fashion and want to be fashionable to have to continually buy. And we're seeing some magazines do the sort of buy, keep, store. And I think that's a wonderful thing. But how do you see the industry starting to move toward 
a more sustainable way of seeing fashion so that it's not just about what is of the moment and what we might need to continue to purchase to be in the moment. That's part of, the, I think, the systemic issue of this whole topic. There's a lot of companies out there that they're selling trends. I don't have an 100% answer because it's a very complex, ingrained system, you know, for years and years. But I feel like as customers start to demand more transparency in their supply chains, how they're operating, they're embracing more secondhand. Why they're going to secondhand? Because they're finding this unique piece for them. They're going to secondhand because probably they are not following trends. So I feel like as companies are starting to feel more the pressure, maybe they're going to slow down a little bit on trends, on collections. I mean, it's like a very simple line, and she has been doing this for a real long time, but she's giving down, like, coming down even more, like simplifying her line even more, and her customers are loving it. She just really went back to the design room. I'm like, let me edit down all of the noise, everything that is not me. And then the customers are really loving it. So I feel like designers need to go back to the design room, slow down, and then what's inspirational for them, right? Me as a designer, I always, I never liked when my... Some of my other teachers will tell me, go and what's the trend of the season? I'm like, I don't want to follow the trends. I'm a designer. I'm going to design school, not to you tell me what to design. I'm going to go and find my own inspiration, my own fabrics, my own colors, and I'm going to do that. And I feel like designers nowadays have lost that, right? They're telling them what to design. They're telling them what colors, what fabrics they should be using. And that's not fun, but that's how our system it is. And I find it very challengeable that it will change anytime soon. There's nothing I enjoy more than getting my latest copies of Vogue or Harper's Bazaar. And because I've been loving fashion for as long as I have, being seeing something that's of the moment that's still in my closet from 30 years ago. Whenever leopard prints come back, I, I go woohoo because I have this fabulous scarf I bought in the 80s that now is of the moment today again. For designers that are looking to reduce waste, are there opportunities for other brands, other companies to adopt their own take-back programs in a low-cost way? Ouija, it seems like you are able to do that. What advice would you give for others that are trying to do it too? I think one of the things, again, Carmen touched on, it's very layered, it's very complicated. Because when you think about celebrity culture, you think of social media, you think of everything that we are so bombarded with, it's uh, on to the next one, trends, get rid of that, get the new bag, get the new jacket or whatever it is. It's always about the next and consume more versus for me as a designer, it's the same thing. I'm a graphic designer by trade. So as far as trends and figuring out like what's happening and subscribing to services that tell you what the color of the season is, the fabric, I'm like, dude, first of all, I can't afford it. Second of all, that's boring. <laughs> like, why are you trying? Like, this feels like we're back in school with these rigid professors who wanted us all to work within this brown paper bag. 
And it's like, and that's not part of my story. That color story to me says nothing to me. And the brand that we built is about telling the story and about pushing the envelope for us, not for the trends. And if you get it, then you do get it. And I think, again, designers need to also lower the bar <laughs> on their expectations of becoming rich and famous being designers, because again, trends and, and overproducing and partnering with investors and manufacturers that want you to pump out more product is ultimately the road to success and being this famous rich designer. But it's also the same path to putting out more product that's destroying the universe that people ultimately want to chase. So I do think that we need to, as Americans, lower the bar. And it sounds crazy because it's like, oh, what do you mean? Lower the bar? No, like you are wealthy. You are living this rich life with less. How do you live this rich life with less, right? You don't need the new bag. You don't need the new iPhone. And I'm releasing varsity jackets and I'm like, you don't need it. You want it. But again, and if you do buy it, we will buy it back from you. We'll let you know that there is an exchange. There is a system of being able to say, you know what? Okay. That was impulsive. I wore it. I enjoyed it. I can bring it back. And it still has value versus you, you walk out the showroom or you walk uh, off the sales floor and the value of the product goes down and you sell it on real or the grail or something else. And you're only getting half or a quarter of what you paid for it. So I think as designers, we need to, and as people, as Americans and as people, lower the bar uh, on what success looks like or what you think trends in success, trends in what to wear, trends in how many followers and social, lower the bar and just really slow down. Carmen said it, slow down and enjoy the process. Enjoy buying that scarf and saying like, hey, how am I going to use it for other outfits? And 10 years later, oh, wow, it's still, it's still the thing. <laughs> Leopard print, Leopard right? Print. Yeah, I want to chime in here to your question. There's some companies that they're starting to surface to start offering these platforms for smaller brands or bigger brands to have take back programs. And I'm not promoting or anything, but I started actually a company last year, but I haven't been really um, very public about it. But I started making you, which is a company that's going to be a one-stop shop for brands, small brands or big brands, that we will handle everything, right? From the reverse logistics, right? To the sortation of the goods, cleaning, repair, remanufacturing, fiber recycling, and we will deliver a final product to the com to the companies. We've been in a year, but we started this is because we understood that not everybody knows how to do it and have the financials to do it in-house, right? So we wanted to provide this post-consumer supply chain for them. So more on that. So this is a big exclusive you're giving us, Carmen. Thank you. Where can people find out more about this? Do you have any place to send them for more information? Yeah, it's makeanew.com. A new is with double E because the train was taken. <laughs> if they follow me on my Instagram, Carmen Gamma, I have a link there to my Instagram, makeanew. We already have clients, so you guys can reach out to me. Wonderful. That's one of the things. Wonderful. I have one last question, and this is for both of you. Do you have any advice for our listeners that are looking to adopt their own personal style in a more responsible way? 
but don't know exactly where to start. What advice would you give our listeners? Uniform. Find a uniform. Think in a uniform way and format. You can wear the same thing over and over and people don't even realize it. And I do that often. I wear the same thing, the same look, the same outfit for weeks and months on end. Uniform, that's sustainable. You want to be clean, of course, and stay fresh and clean. But for sure, wear your stuff more. Wear the stuff more. You have a closet full of clothes. And being in the industry, people think that I have this ginormous walk-in closet. I don't. I wear a lot of the same things quite often. But yeah, shop responsibly, shop. Normally you buy things impulsively and then you'll go back to the thing that you ultimately, you know, have fallen in love with. But wear your stuff more. Yes to that. And I will just add that I'm a secondhand shopper, right? I like, I just love clothes and I don't have a big closet because who has a big closet living in the city? But whenever I... If you have a big closet, you turn it into a bedroom. Exactly. <laughs> Literally. So I just shop secondhand. I'm spoiled because I work for Eileen Fisher. All of Eileen Fisher clothes, but damaged clothes, actually. Like there's holes in this sweater that I'm wearing right now. And I love it. The only thing that I do not shop well, I do shop secondhand shoes, but I love my shoes, so I tend to buy that. That's my guilty pleasure. I will just support secondhand. I, I love both of these ideas, Ouija. I only wear one color now. I wear black. It's, I've grown up wearing all kinds of things over the years. At 60 years old now, I can say I have a bit of a uniform. It makes it easy. It makes it very simple to be able to mix and match everything. And, and then I try to take care of things so that I don't have to keep buying new things over and over. The one thing that I have learned over the years in my time in branding is if somebody's idea of, of something brand new is going to make them feel better, it'll only last for a little bit of time. Humans metabolize our purchases very quickly. So maybe we can try as a culture to figure out ways to repurpose what we buy in ways that can give us continuous joy and pleasure. Kudos to that. In any case, thank you both for joining us today on NYC by Designs The Mic. Thank you, Ouija Theodore, Carmen Gamma, for inspiring us with your vision, your creativity, your style, and your ideas. Join me next month to talk even more design on the mic. Follow at NYC by Design on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And subscribe to the newsletter for the latest in New York City design.